Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. Galatians 4 I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba! Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. If a son, then an heir through God. We are royalty, as uh, Amy said so well, before the foundations of the world. God chose you to adopt us and to make us royalty. Now, I'm not going down the COVID-19 path because I realize our congregation has people with very differing and very strong opinions on the spread and the treatment of that virus. But I would like to talk about another ailment for which I was immunized in the last year. I have never had this ailment, but I do know others who have experienced it. And the symptoms are something I do not want to experience ever. When I was a child, I had chicken pox. And I have been told that since I had chicken pox, the virus is in me and could produce symptoms at any time. Possessing the virus and hearing of the symptoms prompted me to take both injections for the shingles 
sickness, disease, virus. For seven messages, you have heard me say that obeying God's law will not guarantee your place in His eternal kingdom. And studying and knowing about shingles is not going to keep me from getting the disease. The only way that we can be placed into God's eternal kingdom, it only happens through trusting faith in what Jesus accomplished in the crucifixion and the resurrection. So if obedience doesn't merit heaven, should the law be ignored? If studying the shingles virus will not keep me from getting the virus, should I admit that there is a virus? See, Paul clearly states in today's text that the law does serve a very positive role. The positive role of the law is it identifies the type of life that leads to God's pleasure and God's blessing. The law does not tell us how to get to heaven. The law tells us how to live on earth the life that God is pleased with and that God blesses. Now, because I do not want to experience the virus known as shingles, I will look for a way to avoid it. And right now, the best way to avoid it is through immunization. If you want to avoid the curses that are mentioned in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they had to learn to stay within the boundaries that are set by God. The description of shingles has prompted me to seek the remedy. And the violations of humanity point to a need, the promised seed of Abraham. So the law is of purpose because it tells us you better be looking for the remedy, Jesus himself. Because I have found in this life, supervision is required. I see that in verses 19 through 25. Because it tells us that the law came because of transgression. And if you were here last week, we found out that God chose Abraham. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. 400 years later, then God gave a law, but the law was never meant to get people to heaven because Abraham had already been sent to heaven before the law was ever given. This week, we see that the law came because of man's sinful tendencies. I see these sinful tendencies, and every parent has seen these tendencies. One of the first lessons that a parent learns is the consequences of not providing enough activities for their toddlers. What happens when a young child doesn't have enough positive things to hold his attention. And I'm seeing mothers shaking their head. Not busy, big problems. I heard that the scariest thing a parent can find in his or her home is a Sharpie cap without the marker. Sometimes kids are drawn into mischief without even knowing that it's wrong. 
And I'm sure that Abraham loved his grandsons. And he probably thought that they were the next best thing to godliness, just like you think of your grandchildren. But Jacob and Esau become an illustration for us of conniving and manipulation to get one's way. So somehow between the faith of Abraham, his grandsons are connivers. So years later, God had to give a law that says, this is what I expect if we're going to get along with one another. What happened to the Israelite jewelry while God was giving the law to Moses? Moses came down and he saw all sorts of idolatry and debauchery. Before he could even give the law that God had given to him, he saw transgression. And because of our mischief, God has given to us an expectation so that we will realize we need a remedy. Because of man's sinful tendencies and man's attempts to justify himself, God gave Moses a list of things that do that a list of things that do not lead to God's blessing in this life. If you break these laws, you can expect not to receive God's blessing. Verse 20 tells us that when God made a covenant and a promise to Abraham, he did it directly. God directly made covenant with Abraham. But if we look at verse 19, we may get a little bit confused about the angels and the intermediary. An intermediary implies that there are more parties involved, but God did it directly. I think the takeaway from verse 19 is that um, God defined the law for the Israelites. But when he did that, he did it through Moses, the intermediary, and according to the Jewish tradition in Paul's day, angels were involved somehow too. Now, the Pentateuch story does not mention or deny that angels were present on Mount Sinai. We know God was there. We know Moses was there. And it doesn't say yay or nay if angels were there. But by the time that Paul lived... The Jewish tradition is that there were angels involved in taking care of Moses' needs while God gave him the law. I think perhaps Paul's reference here to angels is just to prove how the law, both how it was given and how it was lived out, had become twisted by human ideas. What God gave over time became a mess. And it was because of our mischief that he had to give the law in the first place. I also see in verses 20 through 23 the idea of being imprisoned. Because once the boundaries had been given, we knew what was acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Once the law was given, the nature of our transgressions is always to try the boundaries. I kind of feel like I'm preaching to the choir here because I see some cattlemen whom I know have spent more hours than they would like to admit rounding up beef that got beyond the boundaries. 
There were cows outside the fence. Because no matter how strong of a fence you place, the cows want to go beyond the boundaries. And that's us. The, the, the boundaries of the law, the fence lines are in place, but we always strain to get just beyond what the boundary is. Even though the boundaries can be a very loving protection. Farmers put up fence, ranchers put up fences because they don't want the cow to get hit by a, a car on the road. The fences are meant to protect. But to the animal, eh, they, they constrain, they, they restrict, they, they seem like a prison walls that are keeping me from that grass that is just on the other side. See, the law defined the boundaries, and when the boundaries are placed, we feel like we are imprisoned because we think that God is some sort of a cosmic killjoy, to use the phrase of another. And not only are there boundaries, not only do we strain against the boundaries, but just to make sure we don't break the fence, God allows the law to serve as a guardian for us in verses 24 and 25. I've kind of noted this in your handout as, as um, the monitors. When I was in school, there were some parents, some students, some employees who were given a particular role without much authority. Their role was simply to observe and report. The hall monitor, the lunchroom monitor, the recess monitor, the bathroom monitor, and the safety patrol were appointed to remind the other students of the proper expectations and then to report if there were any violations. In Paul's day, it was common for a wealthy parent to appoint one of his slaves as a monitor or as a guard for his child until the child reached puberty. Now, the guardian in this verse is different than the guardian we see in chapter 4, verse 2. Two different words for guardian. This one is just meant to point the boy or girl in the right direction, to keep him or her from getting into mischief. It was a personal conscience that was assigned by a wealthy man to care for his son. And God sent the law to be your personal conscience to keep us from straining against the boundaries, even though they feel like they imprison us. I was the eldest of four children in our family. And there came a time when I no longer needed a babysitter. I no longer needed a guardian. But I wasn't yet mature enough to be responsible for my three sisters. I remember explicitly telling someone who was invited to care for my three sisters, someone who was sent to monitor and to guard my three sisters, that I do not need a babysitter. But God sent a personal monitor to make sure that we don't harm ourselves, to make sure that we don't step outside of the boundaries. I think we need boundaries. 
I think it's a good thing that God gave us a law that says this is what I expect. Because unlike the open range of southern Chase County, in God's economy, there are very clear fence lines that separate those who are on Christ's ranch and those who are off Christ's ranch. The fence lines define the pastures that belong to one particular rancher. And your cattle are either on or off your pasture. And by sending us the law, it's God saying these are the boundaries. You are either in or outside of the life that I bless. In verse 26, notice that the pronouns change from we, we, we. Boy, that sounds like three little pigs, doesn't it? The, the pronouns change from we in 19 through 25. In verse 26, all of a sudden, the pronouns are you. And I think this indicates to us that Paul is about to change his focus. Instead of talking about humanity at large, there are those who are on and off ranch. Paul now focuses only on those who are on God's ranch. And he says those of us who are part of God's ranch, we are family. We are family because we have participation with Christ. In verse 26, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith, we are all who are in the family are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are in the family. By speaking to you, the Galatian believers, Paul is not addressing those outside of the family. He says, for those of us who are inside the family, we have the full identity as sons. You're not a foster child. You're not a stepchild. You're not a ward of the state that's been placed under you for guardianship. He says, if you're in the family, you are a full son. The Roman legal system, under which Paul wrote this, had three um, categories. There were slaves or servants. There were young children who were not yet mature. And there were heirs, as in an heir to the throne, as one who is receiving an inheritance. And Paul says, if you are in the family, if you are in Christ, you are a full heir to the throne. You are royalty. You are not a servant. Our courts have tried to draw distinctions of the quality within the identity of being human. Intimating somehow that dependence makes one somehow of subhuman or someone who is only potentially human, who does not have the same rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But as we would say, if you are human, you are fully human. Paul is saying is if you are in Christ's family, you are full royalty, not just that you are potential. 
We believe that the biblical teaching of anthropology, the study of man, is that from womb to tomb, you either are or are not human. There's no potential humanity. There's no quality of humanity. You are or you are not. And if we are in Christ, we are in the family. If you have faith, you are a full heir, regardless of your development, your maturity, or your ability. We have participation with Christ, and we have parity in Christ. If you are identified in Christ, you have full standing as a citizen of God's kingdom, regardless of your race, Regardless of your social standing, regardless of your gender, if you are in Christ, you are a full heir. Now notice what this does not say. This does not say that all the distinctions disappear. My wife, being a Christian, in no way diminishes her femininity or causes it to be irrelevant. But by leveling the playing field, by leveling the standing of all believers, it is not permission to define your own impression of your gender. See, parity, we we hear a lot about equality versus equity. Parity means that God doesn't love boys more than he loves girls. However, just because he accepts us both does not mean that we can cross over to the other. Just because a man will never be able to nurse a child does not mean that men are worthless in raising children. God gives some abilities to some and other abilities to other, but both are important. Just because a woman, according to 1 Timothy 2.12, cannot be an elder in the local church, does not mean that women are unable to make a significant contribution to the kingdom of Jesus. Just because we come to Christ on the same level does not necessarily mean that we all have the same role to play. I'm curious, how many of you tested out my experiment about touching your tongue to your elbow? All right, there's one who tried. I see somebody hiding behind Aunt Chelsea, and I heard he even tried it during the service. If you wonder what I'm talking about, two weeks ago I mentioned that it is humanly impossible for you to touch your elbow with your tongue. Feel free to try that later. But I saw another physical challenge on Thursday of this very week. If you are to face the wall, stand back, 24 inches, put your feet together, bend over, and pick up a chair, a woman is able to stand up while holding the chair, and a man is not. Something about the way your muscles work, a woman can hold the chair and stand up, but a guy can't. See, God makes us different in that way. You can try that this afternoon. Maybe that's a test that Topeka needs to use to impose which locker room a person should go in. I, I don't. See, Paul, when he says we are all one, what he's saying is we are all saved the same. 
We all receive the same inheritance. He's not saying that we serve the same. We can complement one another in our service while all being saved as full heirs. See, we have our, our participation with Christ. We have parity or equality in Christ. And we also have the privilege of Christ. The, the privilege that we have is because of Christ and he shares his privilege with us. The Thomas estate is not going to put any of my sisters or myself on the wealthiest Americans list. And even though I am the only male of our four children, I am the firstborn of our four children. None of my sisters are going to get one cent less of either inheritance or liability than I will. See, we are all full and equal heirs within the Thomas family. And my friend, we are full and equal heirs with Christ in the kingdom to come. You, my friend, are not a slave. You are not a servant. You are royalty in God's family. Because we read in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. So it says, even if you suffer right now, we suffer knowing that eventually we will be heirs with Christ to the very throne of God. Now, while we're talking about inheritance, Paul goes right into talking about the initiatives that come to us from a good father. The first seven verses of chapter 4 tell us that God, our good heavenly father, initiates activity for our good. The first is, God provides for us necessary protections. The guardians and managers of chapter 4, verse 2, are different than the guardian of chapter 3, verse 24. I told you in chapter 3 that the guardian was there to keep us from getting ourselves into trouble. The guardians and the managers... In chapter 4 says that God has placed people to keep us from hurting ourselves. God has placed with us people that protect us from being hurt by others. The chapter 3 guardian was an individual who kept the son from going astray. The chapter 4 guardian ensures that the father's desires were carried out throughout the family and the estate. As Amy said, before the foundation of the world, God chose you. And because he chose you, he has placed guardians to keep us on the right path until the end time. See, the guardian made sure that the father's desires were carried out. The manager ensured, or the steward ensured, that the father's estate flourished and it grew. So, guardian chapter 3, keep us from getting mischief. Guardian, chapter 4, make sure that we are safe. Manager, chapter 4, make sure that we flourish within the family and that God's purposes continue. 
See, the chapter 3 guardian focused on the child specifically. The chapter 4 overseers supervise how the family as a whole relates to one another. In western Chase County is a vineyard that was planted the year that I came to Cottonwood Falls. The owner has contracted with individuals in chapter 4 who oversee the grape-to-wine process. The owner of this vineyard has contracted people that oversee the whole process. And, and these overseers make sure that um, the vines are protected from drought, that there are right soil conditions, that the vines are protected from exposure to herbicides and other threats. This overseer, this manager, watches over the vineyard. But the owner has also hired vine dressers. That's chapter 3. Who give attention to the individual plant with pruning and shaping the plant so that each individual plant contributes to the vineyard as a whole, which produces what the landowner desires. And so the lesson is, is God has given us the law. God has given us the Old Testament to help us to keep from going astray, to protect us from damaging people, and to help us to be productive within his kingdom, within his vineyard as a whole. See, the loving father, a good father, provides protection for his family. But the good father also sends a timely and a sufficient son in verses 4 and 5. In the fullness of time, other translations say at the set time or at the right time, God sent a son. I've heard the difference between knowledge and wisdom is that knowledge is knowing what to do and wisdom is knowing when to do it. Last year, I tried raising tomatoes for the first time. And I couldn't have a simple knee-jerk reaction. The first day it was above 50 degrees, it's time to plant the tomatoes. I consulted with wise and experienced producers who guided me to the right time to plant various varieties to maximize the growing season. At just the right time is wisdom in addition to knowledge. And God sent Jesus the first time at just the right time. Israel had waited for hundreds of years for Messiah to come that first time. And while several of us are very anxious for Christ to come again, we can trust that the wise, good Father will send him the second time at just the right time. See, God sent forth his Son. God did not send a prophet. God did not send angels. He did not send a dream. He did not send a sign. He sent his only son through human and supernatural means. And why did the son come? Redeemed. How I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. See, God sent His only Son to redeem, to adopt, 
not to lead a revolt, not to establish some worldly kingdom, not to punish the enemies of God, but at just the right time, God sent his son to redeem us and to adopt us into his family. The son was exactly who was needed for mankind's greatest problem. Our separation from the one who created us. And at the right time, the son will come again to accomplish the good father's plan. A good father protects. The good father sent a timely and sufficient son. And I also see in verses 6 and 7 that the good father shares the spirit who relates and rules. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. A person exists outside of our bodies, and Jesus said it was to the disciples' benefit that he go away, because if he went away, then he and the Father could send not only the one who is next to us, but the Spirit who will be within us. I believe the Spirit and the Son are distinct persons, because verse 4 talks about the Son, and verse 6 talks about the Spirit. Yet these distinct persons are one in purpose. They are one in essence. So that Paul introduces a wise nuance when he says, this is the spirit of the Son. This is a Son's spirit, distinct from the Son, yet united with the Son, who indwells our hearts. When I look at verse 6 of chapter 4, the Spirit into our hearts where we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the difference between dad and father. You, you may know my father, but you don't know my dad. That comes through relationship, and, and the Spirit causes that relationship to form between us and God. And then that relationship gives way that we rule with Him. Verse 7 indicates that the Spirit changes us from slaves into sons who are heirs of God's throne. A royal inheritance is a significant part of Paul's theology. I've already pointed to Romans chapter 8, but we also see it in, in Titus, where Paul wrote to a young preacher so that being justified by his grace, we might become, read it with me, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, royalty is not just a Paul theme either. The writer of Hebrews describes royalty in chapter 6, verse 17. John wrote about royalty in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. See, my friends, being raised royal is not just a hallmark gold crown or a Kansas City sports thing. In Christ, we are royal. In Christ, we are chiefs. In Christ, we are kings. In Christ, we are monarchs. In Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin, but sons clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Isn't it good to know that we're not slaves, servants to be kicked around? But God has made us royalty in his family. 
that will last into all eternity.